Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. I'm Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is dedicated to the insightful discussion of music arranging and composition. What we do takes a lot of hard work and resources. We are asking for support from listeners like you to continue to make this podcast available for everybody. Please consider contributing a monthly donation to our Patreon platform. We sincerely appreciate any contributions you are able to give. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram or leave a review on iTunes. Be sure to send us your questions and feedback to thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com and find out more at www.thearrangerspodcast.com. Let's dive in. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Rangers Podcast. This is Aaron Hedenstrom. And Drew Zaremba, thank you for being here. We are delighted to be continuing our series entitled Common Mistakes um, and uh, the subtitle potentially being a number of things and, and what to do instead or uh, things that you might avoid doing. And the topic this week is, uh, last week you might want to consider our uh, episode entitled Conception, where we talked about a bunch of uh, wonderful things to do with how you approach the writing process. But uh, we're going to get into the nitty gritty today, uh, dealing with uh, an oft uh, discussed topic, voicings and orchestration. For whatever reason, this is like what a ranger, what, what, what is stereotypically considered to be, oh, you're having a writing conversation now that you're talking about voicings. Isn't that funny? Yeah, it's it's sort of uh, I, I think it's a very unique thing to writing, you know, I mean, right, right. I, I know that, you know, piano players, guitar players do think about voicings, but I think it's a crucial part of arranging and composing. And, you know, I, I mean, I just really think there's such a deep art to voicing chords and yeah. orchestration. And this is where you can do a lot of your creative choices. So I think it kind of makes sense. I mean, it's one of the it's one of the things that we think about as writers kind of I don't know I probably think about it more than a lot of the other subjects of music um, just because it's so necessary it is it is for whatever reason for me man like I don't like talking about voicings even though we we have to like I'm glad we're going to be talking about voicings and orchestration today but uh, I don't know the voicings are often there is a lot of creativity there and yet like at the same time there isn't because it's like, oh, it's a C7 with the ninth in the melody. Well, uh, you're going to do an up. You have a couple great choices and then you have some weird ones, you know, and the weird ones work if you're doing something weird. But if you're just doing a normal thing, it's probably going to be an upper structure, tri- a D major upper structure triad on a C7, a chordal structure building fourths and a tritone down. Or, uh, you know, some kind of block voicing, maybe a drop two or something. You know, it's a funny topic. And, and I, I've recently started enjoying talking about it. But I think for a long time I was like, Ugh, can't we talk about rhythm or <laughs> like yeah. melody or um, orchestration or form? Like, why is everyone talking about voicings all the time? Okay, maybe I shouldn't be so hard on voicings. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I hear you, man. I mean, I'm I'm a voicing nut. I love it. It's one of my favorite. So I, I probably, I've been trying to spend more time thinking about the other stuff, actually, in my writing, you know, but um, but that's what makes it beautiful, right? We're all, we're all prone to thinking about different aspects more, and, yeah. uh, and we can learn from each other a lot, and... Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm excited to talk about this. I I just find it fascinating though, maybe because uh, there's such a structural component to it, right? There's like right, and, right. And our, our first topic, maybe that's a good uh, segue into mm-hmm. our first our first note on voicings and orchestrations, uh, which is that the physics of sound is based on the overtone series. You know, a series of ratios uh, that form yes. from a fundamental pitch. And when you're writing voicings, one of the principles that we are uh, supposed to follow, or at least um, for clarity. much, yeah, for clarity and for much of our voicings, 
Uh, we're supposed to loosely follow the shape of the overtone series. But I think that it's a fascinating topic because there's such a structural component. It's almost like architecture building a skyscraper and the yes. physics the physics of how you Ugh. space and build your cord according to the physics of sound can Ooh. really topple or support <laughs> your voicing. I mean it it like it's fascinating to me because like you said it, and it's in, it's weird like you said it's creative but in a lot of ways you're actually just trying to do what the physics of sound tell you to do, you know? I love that metaphor. I forgot that metaphor, and I love that metaphor so much. Uh, you just, ah, thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to use that in every class now from, from now on. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's got to work. You can't build a skyscraper on sand. It's, mm-hmm. it's got a, you need a stable foundation. Um, you know what? And then, and then someone might say, yeah, but what if you're building in zero gravity? You know what? Then you can do that. And if that's your context, then you can absolutely, you know, you can get away with other things. And if you know how to construct something in zero gravity and you have the blueprints and the knowledge and the, that 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 advanced uh oh i'm gonna say something stupid here quantum physics uh you know (laughs) yeah uh formulaic knowledge then sure but um for those of us who are starting to learn how to build our first structures on earth it's a good idea to take gravity into account and uh figure out and learn what a good foundation is Right. So what does this mean exactly in terms of writing the notes out? Well, the overtone series, uh, you know, starting from a fundamental pitch, let's say like a low F, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, just for those of you who are new to this concept, we have uh, a low note. And within that low note, you can sort of hear these quiet echoes of these higher notes buzzing around in there and different different sounds have different kind of varieties of these uh, of these upper notes. Like if you listen to a ceiling fan, that's really loud, or yes. a car engine, or a, uh, some kind of a, a motor, you'll hear these buzzy, that's what creates this buzzy uh, kind of noise sound is this, this combination of these high overtones interacting with each other. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Every sound in nature follows the overtone series. Period. Right, right. So, uh, so the overtone series is, you know, in a nutshell, octave, perfect fifth, perfect fourth, major third, minor third, minor third, minor or major second, major second, major second, major. And these are rough intervals. They're not perfect according to equal temperament, but correct. That's the closest approximation we have on our A440 equal temperament uh, tuning system. And then it gets smaller and smaller into microtones as it gets higher and higher. So essentially what you're looking at is as it, as it gets lower, the intervals are spaced wider. As it gets higher, mm-hmm. the intervals are spaced closer together. And therefore, when you look at a big band chart, oftentimes you'll see the low register fairly open and empty with wide mm-hmm. intervals. Then you'll see the middle register kind of maybe starting to get a little closer, maybe some fourths, some thirds, maybe some fifths. And then up in the, let, let's say you're writing for trumpets up in the high register, they're usually going to be close together because they're higher notes, you know? Exactly. Now, there's some flexibility there, right? It's art, so it's yeah. not, it's not, uh, we don't have to beat ourselves up trying to, you know, write the overtone series on every chord. But it's the principle, <laughs> it's the principle that you leave more space at the bottom of the voicing and you crunch stuff up a little bit more at the top um, to mirror the principle of nature. Yes. And so getting into our overarching topic, common mistakes, the common mistake for the young writer is to say, oh, look at this beautiful D flat major triad. I'm going to play it up here, uh, starting with my lowest note being D flat four. I'm, oh, man, that or voicing sounds really great right there. I bet you it sounds great two octaves lower, right? <laughs> hmm. 
and uh, or or some other kind of structure. Oh, the trombones, the cellos, the the low voices. I'm gonna write a cluster down in the low register, and and it doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound clear. It doesn't sound as clear as being in the middle in the tenor or alto or soprano registers. And that's because it's not following the overtone series principle, the, the pyramid uh, concept of, you know, start, wide intervals at the bottom. You look at an orchestral chart, you look at a vocal jazz chart, it's not just in big band, of course, you know, it's it's all musics that it's very rare. When you, when you find different kinds of intervals down there, other than octaves and fifths, it's because it's doing a specific effect that is creating some kind of unclarity or muddiness in the music, which might suit that musical scenario. Um, and you have to determine whether that's what you want or not. Most of the time, it's not it, for the beginning writer. Right, right. Yeah, and of course, you know, we can take some artistic license when the situation calls for it or when we want to get adventurous. Um, you know, there are, there may be certain chords you want to voice close together in the low register to be intentionally muddy, as long as you know that you're going to get a muddy sound. Um, you know, a lot of times with uh, teaching arranging, you'll get you'll get the occasional student that wants to kind of push against the laws of nature and say, "Yeah, but what if I like the sound of that really low chord that's voiced in <laughs> that's voiced in major seconds with a minor second in it." Uh, I just really, I'm hearing it. I'm hearing it. And uh, what I would say is, well, if you're trying to write a, you know, a certain style of music, it's probably not right. You know, if you're trying yes. to write a bassy chart or a orchestral chart, that's sort of a straight down the middle type thing. It's probably not the right choice. If you're trying to yes. write an avant-garde piece or something programmatic where there's a specific musical reason to put it down there where it's really dark and kind of sludgy then i sludgy. i guess oh, <laughs> i guess a great word i guess there's some i guess there could be some value in that as long as you're aware that you're not breaking a rule but that you're that you're sort of uh pushing up against a principle right right exactly yeah it's like in in cooking you know oh i'm i'm re i'm i'm gonna mix uh, paprika, cardamom, chocolate, and uh, lime zest. And it's, I'm really, I'm really tasting it. I'm, re I'm really, really tasting it. And I'm like, <laughs> but you've barely learned how to use pap smoked paprika in anything at all. Right. What makes you think it'll work in this extremely awful context? And then you're gonna feed it to someone. Um, <laughs> um, That's right. So yeah. Anyways, so that's our, you know, we got to start there because that's just, I think, one of the most common mistakes is is voicing things in the lower register where they simply don't belong um, for for a lot, for, for, for many different kinds of music. Mm -hmm. um, but this leads nicely, you know, that all of this has to really do with construction. Um, and so, you know, the construction of the voicing. Um, what are what are some common mistakes that that you see in in uh, in voicing construction uh, other than the overtone series, Aaron? Well, let's start with the obvious: wrong notes. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think as artistic people, there's uh, there's a certain part of us that sort of pushes against the idea that oh, these are wrong notes, or or you know, well, why can't I write that note kind of thing? But let's you know, let's face it. Uh, there are wrong notes when you're sort of doing a certain thing, right? Just like, like you could say, well, I, I want to make pizza with chocolate chips on top of it. Okay. Well, <laughs> go for it. It's, but is, is it really, it's not really going to be a good tasting traditional pizza. I don't know. Maybe it would be, I guess. No, I'm, you re know, I'm reconsidering. I, <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't know. Not with tomato and cheese. Yeah. And yeah. I know. You know, I, I could see if those two things weren't there, if it was just bread and cinnamon and chocolate, I could see that happening. Well, yeah, but I it, guess. It, but yeah, you it, get my point. Yes. Oh, yes. For for a traditional uh, tomato marinara and, and, and cheese, mozzarella, you know, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, 
you know, like with with that, it it, it has to do with following the chord. You know, gosh darn it, if it's a C major chord, then then let's just write C major. You know, there's <laughs> I, I love polychords as much as Dave Liebman does. Goodness gracious, but you know, if it's time for just C major, if it was good enough for Brahms. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> if it was good enough for Chopin, although he's not a good example. If it was good enough for Mozart, it's probably good enough. Okay, or how about Ray Charles? Right? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 If it's good enough for Ray Charles, a good old C major, or you know what? Add two. Sure, we'll add a fourth note in there because we're because we like color. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I can't tell you how many. I mean, I think you were telling me the other day. It's just people you know it's a c major chord and then there's an e flat and an a and a b flat <laughs> and 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 maybe just for good measure an a flat right and it's like <laughs> uh, those are those are cool notes but not c major not right c major right right sometimes i can't figure out what someone's writing like it'll be like c major seven and and then i'll look at the notes and be like I'm not sure where you're getting C major seven from, mm-hmm. you know, and it's uh, again, I mean, I think I think it might be a, a sort of a classic example of of trying too hard or thinking too yes. hard. That's why, you know, I think when I teach arranging, I try to show some examples of scores. Uh, and what's nice is on YouTube, you can look up some nice, you know, scores that follow along with the music mm-hmm. um, just to prove like, look, Gil Evans as innovative as he could be with certain things like there's block voicings in there you know there's yes you know he's following chord tones and not like i mean it's not it's not that crazy you know right yeah it's not every bar is not filled with a gill evans genius voicing it's <laughs> it's some bars are typical so that way the really spicy uh innovative things can really stand out right um and so and you know listen to his early arrangements with the claude thornhill band it mm. it sounds like it could be anybody you know yeah yep. at least many moments of it and, and it might be that young writers are were told oh it's jazz it's got to have tension you know mm-hmm. but but you need to have the right tensions mm-hmm. you know like you got to learn what the different tensions are and this is where just being being a, a proficient being proficient at a ranger's piano and mm. and having some degree of jazz theory you know the old adages of stan getz and uh oh who's a trumpet player uh chet baker Thank you. The, all, the, the many anecdotal references of them not knowing what notes are being played. This is just not true. Of course, they knew what notes were. They might have not been trained with jazz, formal jazz theory, but they knew all of these sounds. They knew the tensions on a dominant chord. They knew the tensions on a minor chord, on a major chord, on a half diminished chord. Mm-hmm. They knew. They knew them. Um, and they could tell you and play them for you. They might not be able to explain that it's the natural 11 on a minor 7 flat 5 chord that is a common tone with whatever, but they could they knew what the tensions were. So uh, you should know what the tensions are, uh, most importantly in jazz, on a dominant chord, but in classical music, it might be a, some kind of suspension. Um, in, in modern music, it might be... Uh, any any number of things um that's a great cop out by the way um but uh <laughs> uh you know you you should learn the tensions the typical tensions of the style that you're uh writing in right right exactly uh another thing that to go along with that is um if you write chords in let's say your quote unquote orchestrated winds and brass or strings like let's say you write this voicing out uh for your saxophones brass uh strings if you have them Mm -hmm. and there's like a flat nine and a sharp 11 in there and a 13 Mm -hmm. but then in the piano you put just like f7 
or something like that. And it's like, <laughs> uh, okay, well, you know, a lot of times a, a jazz pianist at least would add a ninth in there, right? So maybe yep. they're going to add a, a regular ninth, and that's going to clash pretty heavily against that uh, flat yes. nine. And uh, so it's it's one of those things where, and I get this question a lot. It's a very understandable uh, question, you know, sh- how much should I write in the piano part or the the guitar part or the bass part wow. when it uh-huh. comes to specificity of, you know, flat nines? It, like, if I write it in the horns, do I also have to write it in the piano? Like, how does that work? And I would say if it really matters, then you should write it in, in the piano as well and the guitar as yes. well because you don't, you know, you don't want to have that clash and, and you stop rehearsal and go, oh, shoot, you know, that's actually a flat at ninth, but I didn't put it in the chart because I wasn't sure. Just And if you look at, like, published Thad Jones charts or whatever, where there's all these dominant substitutions happening, like, the piano parts are kind of a nightmare because it's just, like, every note is, like, a different chord, you know? Yes. And yes. it's, like, yes. highly specific. Like, you know, B B9 sharp 11 to a B flat 13 sharp 11 flat 9. It's very, very technical, very specific to what's being written in the horns so that way you know look the piano player might just leave most of those chords out anyways um, yes. but at least they know if they're going to play that they're not going to be messing up what what's happening in the horns yeah no it's it's you know most of the time i would just write a rest in the piano part but in other cases, like those Thad Jones parts, you want to think about the piano part being kind of like a reduced score. And so that amount of detail is really important. Um, you know, uh, you, yeah, like Aaron said, you run the risk of mixing up 13s and flat 13s and 5s and sharp 11s or flat 9s, natural 9s and sharp 9s. Now, you know, if it belongs to one scale, that's one thing. But there are very, 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 very few scales that mix natural nines and flat nines, at least that are common to jazz vocabulary. Right. So whereas, whereas flat nines and sharp nines, uh, they're good bedfellows, just like sharp 11s and sharp 5s. Mm. They get along quite well. They're all part of uh, uh, altered scale. And, uh, and the flat nines, sharp nines are also in the octatonic scale. So not just with your rhythm section, but, you know, Brookmeyer famously mixed sharp nines and flat and natural nines. Um, he's coming from a place of great knowledge and experimentation, right. and this is not advisable to the the beginning writer who's just learning how these sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, see exhibit A on our paprika, lime, cardamom, and whatever awful other awful ingredient I included. Uh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's the thing when you like. When you're experienced, when you know the typical sounds, you can push, you can push those tonal tonal limits a little bit, because you know where you can push it. You know which chord tones you can push, or you might think of it like, well, this is going to be kind of weird and non-conventional, but I'm going to resolve it next chord, you know, or something like that. Or, or hey, maybe I won't resolve it, but at least I know this is going to have this ear stretching quality to it. And, uh, it's kind of like on, you know, chopped or whatever, like just to keep the cooking analogy going. Cause I just think it's a great, <laughs> such a good analogy for, for writing. Um, you know, you watch chopped and they're like, all right, here's your challenge. You have almonds, uh, marshmallows and, um, <laughs> I don't know anchovies, paprika, yeah, yeah anchovies. Oh, that's and good. <laughs> it's like it's like the most random. Like they're trying to like mess you up, you know. And yeah. uh, you know, but but why do they figure out a way to? Because they they don't try to just mash them all together as if they're a great fit. They try to find a creative way to hide the awkwardness in some creative solution, right? So I yeah. think that's that's just it. You know, uh, Brookmeyer actually talked a lot about, you know, being able to hide the tensions and, and learning how to hide the tensions in a chord um, by the way you voice it, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, so even Brookmeyer, really known for his, you know, kind of bitter voicings that are supposed to make your teeth grit, you know, um, 
you know, I mean, it, it wasn't done carelessly at all. You know, it was done with a great Never. degree of education, skill, and uh, informed, you know, decision making. So that's, I think, what where you have to come from. You know, that makes me wonder, Aaron, if we should do an, like, maybe we could get some uh, listener-influenced emails and, and do a chopped episode on, 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 on <laughs> oh, now Dick. that would be freaking awesome. Wouldn't that be cool? We should do that. So, so if you, if you dig this idea, if you've seen the show Chopped, you know, it's like, get strange ingredients and then you have to make a meal. And so, you know, maybe we could do a challenge, the Arrangers podcast. Um, I think that would little, be really fun. Yeah. So we could I, w- send in your uh, comment on the Instagram, Facebook post, or send us an email. And I think we'll do that because I think that could be so fun. That would be super fun. Yeah. Anyways, but all that is very good, though. Hey, what do you know? A metaphor turned into a challenge. Yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, so a couple other things on voice and construction. You know, Stravinsky was really famous for... Um, avoiding doubling notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at a lot of Duke Ellington scores and Gil Evans scores, they follow that principle to the T. Whereas uh, other other arrangers uh, doubled notes more often. But I think in general, they follow a good principle of doubling the melody and then avoiding doubling other notes. When you double notes, it's, uh, as, as, our, as our teacher Rich DeRosa says, it's like a spotlight. It's like bringing out that note. Mm-hmm. And so if you bring out that note, is it going to overwhelm the melody? Is it going to bring out some other element that you don't really need it there? Um, so don't necess- you don't necessarily have to double all the notes. Consider in your arranging process avoiding doubling notes. Um, what's another, what's another uh, thing to consider avoid uh, doing, Aaron? You know, Depending also, on the context. yeah, also, you know, this one kind of has to do with a similar problem, which is obscuring the melody and, and kind of, you know, making the melody less, uh, less prominent or less clear, but not harmonizing above the, uh, the melody, um, mm-hmm. in most cases, I would say, you know, so for mm-hmm. example, sometimes, uh, like in an arranging assignment where I, you know, write a five note solely or you know block voicing or some kind of five note voicing sometimes i'll get uh students that submit something where like the the melody is some mysteriously placed in the middle of the chord you know and uh and that's not really the technique of of voicing a melody you know a melody is voiced when you voice underneath the melody most of the time now, yes. that being said, I bet there's some someone out there going, yeah, but not all the time, right? Well, yeah, not all the time. But when you're writing out a harmonized melody, the majority yes. of cases would probably be voicing below the melody because then the melody is the prominent voice. So yes. an exception could be, for example, if the melody is in like a bass trombone for effect or something and then you have some lighter instruments on top. But I think, it, at least in my opinion, it's not something I would do often or ever. Or if I yeah. did do it, it would probably mean uh, writing something very light, like muted brass or flutes or clarinets or something. Um, because Yeah. Or, or having the melody doubled up in another instrument as well. To mm-hmm. kind of, because it's just... Or if the note that's being featured in the melody is so much louder in timbre than the mm-hmm. harmony notes above it, then, okay, well, then you can, you know, that's a different story, right? Um, right. And that happens right. a lot with vocals, right? You know, like if you have pop vocals or something, maybe there, you have a baritone singer and then you have a couple of harmony notes in uh, some maybe alto or sopranos uh, that are higher. And so it's like, well, that's... That's kind of an example where the timbre of the tenor is, or the baritone, excuse me, is is more prominent b- because of the way it's mixed in the in the you know song or uh, the way it's performed or whatever. But you you uh, let, let me put it this way, you know, if you're gonna write a sax soli, the melody should be on the top <laughs> because yes, otherwise the, it's not gonna sound like a melody. 
the ear is drawn to the top voice, period, no matter mm-hmm. what happens. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to if you want some kind of texture to operate above the melody, it should be in counterpoint, not mm-hmm. as a homophonic texture, because when everything's moving at the same rate, the ear is drawn to the top voice, period. Or the um, loudest voice, whatever. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, well said. Very, really well said. Another common mistake that we come across is the spacing or uh, what my uh, uncle from New York might call spacage. Um, <laughs> and, and this has to do, again, with the overtone series. But you, you really want to think about the intervallic relationships between notes. Um, that's why we often teach block voicing, because you'll, you'll never have a problem with intervallic relationships. You're going to have... Oh, it's a it's a C dominant uh, nine, you know, and so that sound is gonna sound good even if you and if and we, and we teach drop two or we t- teach drop two and four, and those are great. Uh, might we say uh, bowling alley rails, and those prevent the novice arranger or beginning arranger from uh, creating problems where I, I see it all the time where you have a three horn uh, you know arrangement trumpet tenor and bone and the bone is way far away from everywhere else uh, mm. the trumpet and the tenor are working in concert and, and, and are, are harmonized together and then the trombone is just off in, in the bass register or in the tenor register just way far away and that's not really going to sound like a voicing. It's going to sound like the tenor and the trumpet are working together, and then the trombone is very far away, not working together. So that is, um, you know, you want to think about the intervallic relationships between notes. With strings, you might be able to get away with something like that. Um, that's where, again, we're, we're starting to dive into orchestration a little bit. Instruments work differently together. Um, strings can tolerate larger intervals between notes. Horns, in general, uh, enjoy uh, a sound that is where they're closer together and they're working best together. So, like, the furthest you want to get is, like, sixths, maybe a seventh, but most of the time, no more than a, a sixth between voices. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah, I mean... I think one of the easiest mistakes to make at first when you're writing out voicings is to kind of, you know, write a voicing where you have like a third on top and then you have like a weird, like a fifth in the middle of the voicing and then you have a couple thirds on the bottom. Right, right, right. What's up with that, you know, empty space in the middle of the chord? Like why, why is that there? You know, Uh, it's, you know, it's sort of, it's one thing to have the top note as a separate entity and then the rest of the voicing down below or something like that where it's like there's a separation between the melody and the uh, harmony, uh, but then to have, you know, three harmony notes and then a huge space and two more harmony notes, it, like you said, with the trombone being way down in the bass register, it sounds disconnected, right? Mm-hmm, and so, mm-hmm. you, you know, the question is, well, are these two different ideas or are they, are they the same voicing? Because if they're the same voicing... It, it doesn't sound like it. It sounds, unless, of course, you know what you're doing and you could get some kind of interesting, you know, kind of non-conventional voicings if you were careful to do it in the right way. But that would be, that, again, it's another case where yeah. that that's not to say go ahead and do it all the time. It's just I think you have to start with, with the basics and then as you can kind of experiment with great information at your disposal and and maybe a degree of caution (laughs) and maybe a a, a dose of humility that it might not work even, (laughs) you know? Uh, Yes. I think, uh, again, a lot of voicings work well uh, as a unit close together with maybe... A little bit of space if there's a drop two voicing, which just means you drop the second note from the top or the drop three, yes. drop the third note from the top. There, you know, there you have like a little bit of a controlled spacing in the voicing, but it's not like this random spacing that makes no mm-hmm. sense, you know. 
Right. When when there's when there's too much space, it feels like two different structures, which could work. But if you want it to work as one voicing, it's it's not going to work. I find a lot of the times in finale, I don't know if you, I'm sure you run into this in your student with your students, Aaron, but um, finale or Sibelius will assume, oh, that trombone, you've written it too high. We'll just lower it the octave for you when you explode your beautiful voicing that you've worked on for an hour. Like, uh, it'll just lower it down an octave and then the student won't realize that finale did this and not fix it. Mm. And... Uh, and it just leads to significant problems uh, later on during the recording session. Do you run into that at all? I have not run into that in Sibelius, but I'm sure I've seen it in someone's assignment where they're like, wait a second, what? What happened? Um, yeah, it's probably a finale thing, but it's like an auto-transpose thing or whatever. Okay. Where it's like, yeah. ooh, yeah. if it's something that, you know, but, yeah. and this is a, we're about to get into this about the tenor trombone, but you know, it's a tenor instrument. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of its notes are outside of the bass clef. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so that's, that's about, uh, voicing, voicing spacing. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and before we get off voicings, uh, we should, we have to talk about voice leading, I think, eh, Aaron. Mm, absolutely. I think voice leading is one of the most critical, aspects of writing yeah um i also think it's one of the most critical aspects of of playing improvised solos too if you're an improviser Ooh, come on now um because uh, uh to me you know anyone anyone can play a scale right mm -hmm. anyone can write the notes of a chord but those notes have to make sense so let me put it in a uh, this is the this is an analogy I like to use when I talk about improvisation because um, a lot of times with jazz harmony or or whatever we talk about modes and scales and things like that and it's like okay cool so you know your mixolydian scale works over this dominant chord um, so you can just kind of play any of those notes of the mixolydian scale and then it'll all work and that's a great place to start off when you're teaching somebody improvisation because. The mm -hmm. first thing is get them playing, get them playing, get them playing. But at a certain point, now you have to start saying the order of the notes matters. And yes. And and so that's what voice leading is is it's kind of like saying, "All right, you know, you've learned some words in in whatever language you're learning. Let's just say, you know, because that's the only language I know very well, English. Um <laughs> like let's say you know, you know that certain words mean certain things. Now you mm -hmm. have to learn how it's conventionally worded in the order. So, you know, the horizontal, the horizontal movement, the horizontal placement. Right. Like I went to the store. I store went to the they're different. <laughs> I mean, I hey, could, Yoda. you know, I could piece <laughs> together the meaning of that. Right. But it's not the. Uh, traditional order of the words that makes sense to people who are listening to that language, right? So uh, I think of it as the same way, right? You could play any notes of a scale in order, but or in any order, but I think it matters when you're trying to create a line that makes sense to people's ears. Yes, that's so good. Yeah, and <laughs> in, in that way, the voice leading is also going to help the swinging like in a in a in a swing genre in 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 many genres uh, good voice leading means good melody playing from the inner voices mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. which you know the thickened line is kind of a an innovation of jazz and so it, it's it's there because in, in the swing genre but it's there in many genres of course and so if there's good voice leading, that means everyone is going to be playing a melodic line instead of something like, say, uh, you know, <laughs> um, that's 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 the epitome of horrible yeah. voice leading. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, Oscar Peterson does it sometimes, but it's also a piano. <laughs> it's it's, it's yeah. uh 
even still, listen to Blues for Big Scotia. There's plenty of great voice leading happening in the left hand. Um, so that's uh, that's a, a short and sweet spiel on voice leading. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, mm-hmm. you know, make sure that you're not you're trying to avoid repeated notes um, when the rhythm is moving fast. The horizontal placement is just so critical. Right, right, and I mean. You can also write very simple material if its voice leading uh, is very well done. And I think you listen to a lot of a lot of classic arrangements, and it's like let's say Nelson Riddle or um, yep, you know anything that Count Basie's orchestra does, or you know old Quincy Jones big band arrangements. Uh, these kind of Frank Foster, these classic charts. You know when they have these unison lines. That are just yeah. kind of background lines. They're just unisons in the saxes or maybe in the trombones. And it's not fancy, really. It's not technically dazzling. It's not harmonically sophisticated. But what it is, is it's good voice leading. And that's all you need yes. a lot of times, you know? Because it adds a layer of musical. Uh, I don't want to say complexity, but it adds a it adds a layer of goodness. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's just another nice thing in the in the mix. Um, mm-hmm. That's it's not drawing attention to itself, but it's also not clunky and awkward because the voice leading is smooth. And sometimes that's actually all you really want. You know, is for it not to be noticeably clunky and awkward. <laughs> it's like the Montuno on a on a, a Cuban chart, a, a, a son clave piece. You know the uh, the the thumb. That's so critical to like making that, and that's all voice leading. You know, mm-hmm. following the inner motion in the chord uh, that gets us from one place to the other. It's mm-hmm. a, the, mm-hmm. the same concept. Um, yeah. Beautiful. So uh, let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about orchestration. Now, this is a little bit of a bigger topic, so we've broken it into uh, seven different little categories here um, of common mistakes you might make. And uh, the first one, Drew, you mentioned it a, a minute ago, but yeah. writing, writing for certain instruments, too low or too high, but... Uh, the example that, that you came up with was the trombone being too low. So uh, <laughs> so why do you think uh, why do you think that's a problem? Why do you think that that is a temptation for people? Everyone thinks the trombone is a low instrument. And sure, it can play some low notes. But people forget that the full name of the trombone, is in fact the tenor trombone. Mm. And as a tenor instrument, it's real the real way that it shines is in the tenor register. Mm-hmm. And so um it really sings between uh you know C4 B flat 3 and G4 A flat 4. Like this is where it really it has power and cuts. Mm-hmm. And so everyone thinks, oh, trombone, I'm going to write a tuba part now. <laughs> right. And it, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, there's these, this is just an extremely common mistake. Mm-hmm. And so um, whether it's in a jazz context or even classical context, you know, uh, and, and the, the, if you follow the principles of, this is why we wanted to link voicing and orchestration together because they're, they're inextricably linked. But, you know, if you follow the good principles of the overtone series, you'll never write the trombone too low because you won't you won't write chords way down here. Whatever. Um, instead, you'll write it in a in a good register where it it's sounds beautiful and is resonant. And so in a, in a jazz context, this Often, not always, but I'd say 80 to 90% of the time, when you have a trombone voicing with three or four trombones, your lead bone is almost always going to be at middle C or higher. 
mm-hmm. and your mm-hmm. lone in your lowest bone, third or fourth trombone is almost always going to be at middle C or lower. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's a great little trick that uh, Akira Sato uh, taught me uh, when I was in, in, oh, in nice. his arranging lab. Yeah, um, but Love just remember, it's a it's a tenor. Yeah, yeah, he's a beautiful cat. Um, it's tenor trombone, tenor yeah, trombone. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and I always think of the trombone section. You know, when I'm writing voicings, I always. Um, and th- I mean, this is more or less just based on experience, but I always think of it as hovering around the middle C, give or take about a fifth. And that's sort of like, yep. uh, like this is a good range that the, the trombone section can harmonize in and sound great and sound resonant together. You can obviously go a little higher, a little lower uh, to taste, but I think that's kind of like, I like to think of that as the register where the trombones as a section um, mm-hmm. can can live very very uh, comfortably and thrive and and sort of get a great tone that's not strained one way or the other and uh, I think uh, I used to play trombone in high school and no way I, I didn't did. know that yeah yeah um, what I picked up <laughs> I picked up bass trombone for high school. Um, oh my goodness! And yet, it's it's funny, but like, yeah, like the the bottom half of the bass clef register, or the bass clef staff, is really uh, not that great of a register on trombone at all. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, I would say like a D flat in the middle of the register is sort of like that's a nice note. And then anything below that, it, you're like stretching out your arm and kind of, you yes. know, kind of getting this like really spread sound. And I mean, I'm sure a good player could sound better than that, but like, it's it's not the, it's not the full trombone sound that you imagine when you hear a trombone, right? You, mm-hmm. I would say like you know the the D flat in the middle of the staff and higher, those are very nice kind of round playable notes. And anything below that, you're kind of, you know, more or less uh, uh, stretching, and uh, literally because you're stretching your arm out that far. I mean, you're, you yeah. Know, I mean, you're not going to write something that sounds really nice and slick down there. Um, <laughs> that D flat you know. is fifth position. Right. Yeah. Right. So, like, you know, uh, and you know, I didn't know that till I studied the trombone. Till right. I was like, oh. <laughs> Look at this guy playing a B, a, a, a B you yeah, know? Yeah. Oh, that looks uncomfortable. Now, if I have a pro group, does that stop me from writing a B? Well, it depends on the situation. Is it an eighth note line? Yeah, I'm probably not going to write a B. But a B3, I should say. Um, but if it's a elementary group, you know, uh, you know I'm probably going to avoid that note in general, unless it's really slow moving, <laughs> really, 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 really slow moving. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That also kind of uh, segues nicely into our next uh, our next instrument. You know, in terms of orchestration, that you can sort of mess up or do wrong mm-hmm. is the uh, the flute, because the flute is another instrument that's a very register based instrument in terms of how the flute yes. actually sounds and plays and responds. Now, as right. woodwind players, Drew and I know this very, 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 very well. Right. We're, we're saxophone players. The saxophone, you know, with a little exception, sounds great in just about any register. Mm-hmm. Like, it's mm-hmm. resonant and easily accessible. You know, it's, yes. it's loud or soft. Sure, with some limitations. But sorry to interrupt, but yeah, the saxophone is a perfect instrument. Just to be just to be clear, <laughs> it's it's a it's po- probably as close to perfectly even as any wind instrument out there, right? I mean, it's there like there you go, there you go. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're yeah. biased, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah, right. Hey, man, I think uh, I think there's a lot of people that feel the way we feel about the saxophone. No, um, come on, come on. Um. No, but uh, but the flute, right? Uh, it's first of all, I mean, it's a lot smaller, right? So, mm. j- like, uh, flute 
is going to have just generally kind of a smaller footprint in terms of its sonic output, right? It's not going to be right. as generally thick and big and loud. Now, that's not to say it can't be as loud if it's playing in a certain register, but it's uh, it's not as sort of even in its loudness. So you, you get up to the high register, the third octave of the flute, let's say anything above the uh, staff, and that's a mm-hmm. pretty nice, you know, singing reg- resonant register that's going to cut to some degree, and the higher you get, the more it cuts. But, uh, you know, middle to low register of the flute, you know, it's going to get lost in a in a very dense, busy, orchestrated section. Um, um, you, there's, there's no point in writing it. <laughs> right. I mean, unless, you know, it's just sort of another sound, right, or, or another unison or something. But, like, mm-hmm. like it, you know, it doesn't – it's not supposed to be heard specifically. But, I mean, yeah, you, you know, you don't write – a low C on a flute, which is one of two lowest notes um, to, to, to be heard, really, unless there's absolutely nothing else going on. You know, you hear those in like yeah. a, a solo flute piece with piano because, it, you know, it's like a very naked texture and you can, and yeah. you can you can play that in a recital hall with no competition and it'll be heard if you're a right. good player. But if you're orchestrating something out for any size of ensemble that's playing a bunch of stuff all at the same time, it's really going to kind of yeah. get, it, it's it's a very low kind of, you know. <laughs> it, it's yes. just, it kind of, it just, I mean, again, if you're James Galloway, like one of the best flute players in the world, <laughs> you, I mean, I'm amazed at someone like that that can just project those notes in the low register. But yes, that's like, you know, point zero one percent of all flute players that you're going to be writing for especially you know like a woodwind doubling context yeah Um, seriously so so perhaps if you have orchestral level flute players you know maybe you could consider testing those boundaries a little bit but i would say flutes really live in that upper register in terms of like large ensemble music yeah yeah, it'll only really start cutting after uh, G five, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, spe- like you know, and even then, you you really need to get into the third octave for the flute to really, really speak. When other instruments, you know, it'll really it'll provide some warmth or texture in a lower register. But if you want the flute to come forward, it's got to be in that third octave if it's if it's heavily orchestrated. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which, which you know, these are trombone and flute are two just very common instruments to write mistakes for, but the you know every every instrument has its own register that will not accommodate the dynamic range you're attempting to write for mm-hmm. at times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're writing high trumpet, but you want it really soft. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you're writing. You're trying to write low flute, but it's loud. Uh huh. Sure. Yeah. You know. That's where, you know, some instruments, you just have to know that these are the limitations of those instruments. Strings can sound loud or soft in almost any register. So can saxophones. Um, So can clarinet. So can bassoon. Some Some instruments are, they're just different. Does this mean they're better? No. The, the, The wise and the skilled orchestrator will use each of these that use the knowledge of each of these things that we're talking about to maximum effect and say, right. oh, well, low flute is soft. Well, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to do uh, harmonics on the cellos, violas, and uh, violins at pianissimo, three o- two octaves above this really low register flute solo, giving it a lot of distance and giving the, ro- the flute room to project in a in a range where it can't really project, or it's it's uh, 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 Pete Rugolo with a Stan Kenton orchestra and saying, "Oh, the trumpet is stratospherically high. I'm going to make sure it's really supported by everything else, so it can be as loud as possible." Mm-hmm. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, another maybe analogy for thinking of this uh, this idea of of maximizing the strengths of each of your instruments and not 
testing them beyond their limits would be sort of like a, like a casting director of a film or a television show. Woo. Um, you know, it's like, you know, certain actors or actresses are really, really good at playing a certain role or have a certain range of, of things that they excel at. And maybe they're not as good as certain other things. So maybe you have a comedic role guy that, you know, okay, well, they, they like to play the, the funny guy, but, uh, but maybe not for a super serious drama or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe there is someone who has a little bit more of a range, like uh, Jim Carrey or something like that. You know, you can throw, <laughs> them in a, nice. throw, throw them in a drama or Steve Carell, you know, throw them in a mm-hmm. drama, throw them in a comedy. They're, they're good in both. But even they, you know, sort of live in the comedy world like 90% of the time. And so it's, it's, I think it's sort of similar to that where it's like you're, you're not thinking like, oh, well, like let's just cast anybody. Like, oh, Brad Pitt's a good actor. We'll just put Brad Pitt in whatever role or, you know, whoever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of are they right for the role? And I think that's right. I yeah, think yeah, that's yeah. The, the key with orchestrating is like, yeah, you like the oboe can play these notes. Are they right for these <laughs> notes in this instance? Ooh, right, good, you know, good, good choice of that. Yeah, because the oboe has a very specific timbre and specific emotional. Does that? It, it's not that it can't. It can't sound joyful, but you play a long note on an oboe, and people are going to start feeling things. You know. <laughs> <laughs> It's just like it, it has a it's and it's not just instrument specific, but it's also culturally specific. Yeah. You know. Yeah. The the trumpet has a certain role culturally. Does that mean you can turn that you, you can certainly try to turn that role on its head for comedic or dramatic effect, but generally it's it has a role that it fulfills. Oh mm-hmm. the fanfare, loud, uh, uh dramatic um, but yeah, it has a, you know, and knowing what these are so you can lean on them or, uh, flip them on their head, ironically, is, uh, what a, what a skilled orchestrator does. Yeah. Like Stravinsky with the, the high bassoon and in the intro Ooh, right of spring, right? You know, there that's we go. Like, there we go. Get kind of your textbook example of, uh, of flipping the roles, and then the same with the strings in Rite of Spring, playing the more percussive, bop, 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 you know. Um, mm-hmm. Normally, strings are more melodic, more uh, sort of luscious, uh, held-out notes, um, things like that. But, yeah, it's more, you know, kind of more of a brutal and accented sound, bop, bop, bop. But which is more of the brasses, you know, comfort comfort zone, or maybe mm-hmm. percussion, but uh, but that's why I think Stravinsky made his mark is because Stravinsky liked to skillfully and with knowledge of hey I'm pushing the limits of this instrument, but it's going to to sound like I want it to sound, you know, it's gonna be it's gonna work, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. So all of these things are things that, uh, you know, these are common mistakes that we all make, that we've made, and, um, you know, some of it has to do with conception, but a lot of what we talked about today has to do with voicings and orchestration, and we just really hope it's been helpful for you or for uh, how you conceptualize some of these things as you teach them to your students, Um, but we've certainly enjoyed talking about them. This is this is just what we love to do. We love to talk about arranging, uh, in especially in jazz, but in, in all sorts of contexts. Hey, Aaron. That's right. And, you know, just a reminder, we, uh, we're kind of poking fun at these, these um, common arranging mistakes, but we're only doing it because we've made these mistakes at one point or another um, or continue to make these mistakes on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So yeah, we're, sometimes we're we'll try to... Yeah, <laughs> we're laughing at ourselves as much as we are at anybody else. It's all good. It's all in good fun and usefulness. So, um, yeah, uh, we're excited to continue with our final and uh, part three of our series. This is going to be on copywork and notation, an often forgotten aspect of arranging. You know, we get so caught up in the material we're writing, sometimes we forget about the importance of presenting it to the players in a way that 
gets the best out of them. So we're going to talk about uh, that for another episode. And then uh, we have lots of uh, other uh, fun ideas for the future episodes we're going to be making, so stay tuned. Um, Drew, uh, anything else you wanted to wrap up with? No, just thank you for listening. Uh, We would love to hear your feedback and get in touch with you, so please leave us a line. Um, And uh, we're just excited to be making new episodes like this, so feel free to get in touch. Thank you for listening. All right, take care, everybody. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Arrangers Podcast. If you enjoyed what you just heard, you can support us directly with a small donation on Patreon or by sharing this episode with a friend. You can hear lots of other interviews, score studies, and fun discussions at www.thearrangerspodcast.com or wherever you find podcasts. Bye for now and keep writing.